Actually, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That's okay. You still read the Bible, and we're blessed. So, uh, well, over 180 years ago, uh, you know, Tony, Tony told you it was a long time ago, and it's true. Uh, it was quite longer than what he alluded to. But over 180 years ago, nine individuals came to what was then known as the Wisconsin Territory with a desire to build on new land right here. Now, it was called the town of Warren, for any of you, you history buffs, but the town of Warren way back in the day. And these individuals came not only for a desire to, to settle, but they came with a desire to worship their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so on August 31st, in 1843, a local church was born. Now, their first convert, 18 months later, was baptized right over here in the Bark River. Uh, we could still do that. And in fact, I would imagine if we did that, you would want to wait until the summer. <laughs> Probably have a little few uh, more baptisms in the, in the winter months. But, but this, this church, originally named Warren Baptist Church, and then for many years named First Baptist Church of Merton, now, of course, named uh, Grace Hill Church. And though this church has encountered many changes over the years, one consistent theme throughout its long history, has been a desire and a commitment to, to preserve and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are, we are forever grateful for, for how God has, has kept his people faithful to the gospel, not only in the past, uh, but as we earnestly desire to see what God has in store for us, we, we believe that God will continue that work in you and, and in the people in the village of Merton and beyond. Not just for our good, but, but for God's great name. And as, as Grace Hill prepares to move forward, we want to take the next 13 weeks, the next three months, so 13 weeks, and we, we want to pause and we want to reflect on our past. What is, what is the past of, of our church? There's a, there's a rich history, 180 years. But not only as a local church, and the 180 years of God's faithfulness to the many generations of Christians living here in Merton, we also want to look beyond that. And we want to reflect on God's great kindness to preserve his church, his universal church, for over 2,000 years. And so we want to, we want to carefully consider our past as a local church as we position ourselves to, to look into the future and see what is God going to do here in Merton with Grace Hill Church. As you can imagine, 180 years from now, this sounds like a made-up number, but in the year 2204, God's already been faithful for 180 years. What will 180 years from now look like? What, what can we dream that God will do in this church with you? So for each of the next 13 weeks, we are, we're going to slowly work our way through, through separate statements of the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you have a bulletin and you, and you flip it around to the back side, you'll see that creed, that statement of, of, of belief. And as we look through and work through 
this creed, what we also want to do is we want to, of course, look to Scripture to learn how the Scriptures have helped form those beliefs, those statements, and, and anchored us, and also informed how we worship as a church. Uh, it's not just what we believe, it's how we live and how we worship. And of course, that begs the question, well, what is a, what is a creed anyways? And so for those of you that aren't familiar, a creed is really just a Latin word for credo, which means I believe. And so any, you could say any church, really you could say any person that believes anything has a creed. Uh, the, the question, of course, is are they the right beliefs? Is it, is it the right creed? And you know, one author, uh, he said that while all Christians believe more than what is contained in the Apostles' Creed, None can believe less. We all believe more than what's in this this creed. Uh, But we can't believe anything less than what's contained. See, Christianity is not not just belief in belief. Uh, There has to be a propositional truth. And that, that truth that we proclaim is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners is real. It is factual. We do not believe in, in a Christ of our imaginations, but in the Christ of Scripture, the Christ believed by every generation of Christians forever. Now, confessing a creed together may be countercultural for a lot of us. When we say the creed, we're not just expressing our own personal views. What we're doing, when we, when we confess the faith as a church, we're, we're allowing our individual I to, to somehow, in a mystical way, be combined and become part of that unified, singular I of the body of Christ. We're joining our voices, not just together in this room, but we're joining our voices with many men, women, and children who will profess faith in Christ for centuries. And we locate ourselves as a part of that community that, tr- that definitely transcends time and, and this place. It, it transcends the place of Merton. The, it's quite possible that the, the truest and most important things that you and I could ever say are not our individual words, but our communal words. The things that we say that we believe together. But this creed which might be foreign to some of us, or unfamiliar, where would it have come from? Why, why are we looking at it now? Well, the Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, creeds of Christ's church. And its influence can, can be seen up and down throughout all of church history. It was not created by a council. It was, it was not a part of any uh, deliberate theological strategy. The basic form of this creed was an indigenous response to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we can see remnants of it as early as 107 AD. It developed into a more formal format in 140 AD when it was used during baptisms for believers to profess what they believed before they were baptized. And though not written by the apostles, the justification for continuing to call this formation the, the Apostles' Creed is that it preserves the very rule of faith, the standard of faith, the identity of our faith. 
And probably a, a more proper way to put it would be the way that, that Jude wrote in his epistle. And Jude says that the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There is a faith, the true faith, that, that God delivered to us, to us, for us to embrace collectively as a church. And when we look to the, to the creed, what we're going to see is, is the content of this creed is very, although brief, is very rich. And the creed, uh, although it doesn't specifically address the Trinity, has Trinitarian language. The creed addresses creation, the incarnation, including both the humiliation of Christ, his virgin birth, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, but also his exaltation, the fact that he, he did rise from the grave, that he ascended, and he has a heavenly reign. He will return. The Creed also tells us that we believe in the Holy Spirit and the work of building up the church. If, if someone knew nothing else about Christianity, you could find out who God is, the story of what happened to Jesus, and what will happen next, simply by reading this brief statement. But another question, of course, is well, why, why are these even necessary? And there are many, and we won't cover all of them right now, but I'm just going to give you a, uh, maybe a, a small dose. But, but creeds, in one instance, they define truth, and they correct error. For the, from the earliest beginnings, the church had to deal with how to de- defend itself against heresy and doctrinal error. And so creeds were written often in response to heretical teaching. They help us define and defend orthodoxy. They provide, in many ways, a standard of recognizing what is true Christianity. And, and creeds also have a, have a very nice way of summarizing the faith. We'll make it very clear that the creed is, is certainly no replacement for Scripture. But what the creeds do, and any other statement of faith or confession, is they, they help us accurately summarize the contents that we find in, in a creed. So creeds help us define true biblical truth in a way that is helpful and indisposable. They teach us how to worship. They teach us how to confess the faith. They connect us to the faith of our fathers. When we speak with one voice throughout time declaring the irrefutable truth of Scripture, as Christians we believe, not just what the apostles believe, but we believe what other Christian men and women believe outside these walls. And by God's grace, we want to also hand this same faith, these same beliefs, onto our children and our grandchildren. And Lord willing, people that worship here 180 years after we're gone. Now that might sound good to some of you, and um, for others maybe not so much. I'm well aware in my own heart too of that lurking temptation uh, for us to be skeptical of the past. I think we often question anything that's merely just handed down to us. Uh, we, we want to know what we believe, and we should. Uh, sometimes we assume that the truest thing we could ever say must be something that we make up for ourselves, something that's original. Or worse, we, we might say, well, I'd rather have no creed at all. Um, we don't want to be confined or boxed into... Uh, to some kind of statement or something um, that is not original or unique to ourselves. We certainly don't want to embrace some old, antiquated document. Although, we do. 
So we might be a little skeptical of the past and statements that have been handed down from generation to generation, but on, on a slightly different note, as we ponder the opening line of the creed this morning, uh, we have a difficult time believing in a God who, who is personal and capable. Sometimes we find it, and I would, I would say this is in my own life as well, we find it more comforting to believe in a God of our imagination instead of belief in the one true personal God. Instead, I often opt to, to create a personal belief in a God of my liking. And so this morning, as we lean into Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul had a deep love for the Corinthians. And and as he wrote his second letter, much like his first, out of his strong hope that they would keep the gospel that he preached as the firm foundation, he wanted to encourage this congregation and, and lean in to the truth about who God is. Who is this God that that has saved them? Who is this God that they worship? He wanted to lean into this church and say, believe this God. And here's why. Men and women of Grace Hill Church, myself included, you and I are no different. We, We need constant reminders from time to time about the truth that we, that we need to believe. What we need is something real, personal, and magnificent to believe. We need to proclaim, along with the saints of old, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty. Now, let's be honest. We need a God who exists, a God we can relate to, a God that is perfect in every way. Something real, something personal, something truly magnificent. And men and women, if we can't believe in a God like that, then we are a hopeless people. I believe in God the Father Almighty. So three points this morning. Something real, something personal, and something magnificent. We need to believe in something real, something authentic, something true. Point number one is that we need to believe in the real God. We need to believe in the real God. Not just that God is real, but the real God. The Apostles' Creed begins with the statement, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Now notice that the Creed doesn't just merely begin with the words, I believe in God. Rather, it goes beyond that simple phrase to describe the identity and character of God. And in a similar fashion, Paul begins his letter to Corinth by proclaiming the name and nature of God. So turn to to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'll read verses 3 and 4 for us. Paul Paul does something uh, very special here, and he does it so effortlessly. But what he's doing is he's reminding the church of God, but he's also qualifying who this God is. And he uses some key terms to just, just gently help fill in the character and nature of this God. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father 
of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any confliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Well, Paul, the apostle, he assumes a belief in God, and yet he proceeds to expand this idea of who God is by describing both his relationship and his character to the Corinthians. So what Paul thought about God absolutely mattered. What the Corinthians thought about God mattered. And what you and I think about God, guess what? It absolutely matters. In, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, the late Christian pastor and author, A.W. Tozer, he famously wrote that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so we have to to pause and ask ourselves, when I think about God, who am I thinking about? What the church means when it says the word God reveals everything about our worship and our theological integrity. There are many churches. There are churches in this community, when they think of the word God, guess what? They just might be thinking of a different God than you are. And so, what we think about God matters. Now, many of you know Moses, the person of Moses. Moses was a man who thought deeply about God. And being raised in a culture with numerous gods, he was well acquainted with many false gods. There were over 1,500 Egyptian gods known by name. Uh, Yeah, I didn't misquote that. 1,500. I'm saying over 1,500 because I'm giving you the conservative number. There were over 1,500 Egyptian gods by name. And so Moses was, was reared in a culture where there were many different thoughts about God. But of the many doubts and concerns that Moses had about leading God's people out of Egyptian slavery into the Promised Land, one of the glaring uncertainties was what he would call God. (laughs) What was this God like? What was the name of God? See, Moses knew knew Egyptians, and he knew Israelites all too well, and and he knew that they were well acquainted with the Egyptian gods, again, more than 1,500 gods that were known by name, and their respective oversight, supposed powers, responsibilities, And so if Moses was going to call these Israelites out of Egypt, then he he knew that they, along with Moses himself, were going to want to know more about this God. They would be choosing to follow over and above all the other numerous divine options, these deities that they they were so pervasive in Egypt. What, What is it that we could know about this God that's different from all these other gods? And so... What transpired between God and Moses is is one of the most profound experiences in all of Scripture. If you want to turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Because 
what we'll read here is, is the, the account of Moses seeking to know who God is. What do I tell people is the most important thing about you? Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God's response to Moses was to tell people that unlike 1,500 other gods that you know by name, that have all different forms and functions, unlike all these other gods that you can choose from, this is what you tell them. I'm real. In other words, God says, All these other gods that you have a choice to follow and worship, they're not real gods. So stop believing in false gods. And what what God wants Moses to know and the people of Israel and wants you and I to know is that he actually exists. What is the most important thing that we can think about God is that he's real. He is genuine. When God says, I am... What he's declaring to Moses and to you and I is that he is the actual God who exists, who is real. When we say Yahweh, we're saying he exists. We are declaring our allegiance to not just any God, but to the God who actually exists, the God who is real. And so to echo the opening statement of the creed is to affirm the existence of the God who is real. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty. So we obviously need to believe in something real. God is real. And we need to believe in something personal as well. So point two this morning, we need to believe in a personal God. We need to believe in a real God, and we need to believe in a personal God. When we're studying the creed, we don't, again, stop at that generic word, God. We don't simply believe in an abstract reality. We don't believe in, in the eternal existence of some divine force. We believe in something far better. We believe in a God that is personal, a God that can have a relationship with you. I believe in God the Father. The identity ascribed to this one true God of the universe was, was that of a father. 
Christ and his disciples after him confidently approached and referred to this great God as their father. And, and this sentiment is echoed throughout the Bible, especially, of course, no surprise, in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. So returning briefly to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 4, beginning especially in verse 3 alone, Paul tells the church, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. The one thing especially to notice right away is that if the word Father refers to a relation of, of origin with God, then we have to draw one important conclusion right away, is that God is not only Father, but also Son. And these words, Father and Son, are, are relatable terms. Neither would make sense without the other. To affirm the fatherhood of God is to also affirm the sonship of God. And Jesus drove this point home better than anyone could when responding to, to Philip's request to be shown the Father. Philip said, show us the Father. Show us the Father. And what did Jesus say to him? Well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and the Son are at one. And because of the work of, of his only Son, Jesus, we can now call God our Father. This is, this is not some distant unknowable deity, but a God with whom we can now have a personal relationship. And, and so this, this cuts many ways. When we call on God as Father, we're not only giving God praise and honor and, and recognition as a relatable being, but we are also acknowledging his authority over us. From the very moment we, we peek into this world, our, our fathers are our, our immediate authority. Now over, over time that diminishes, and now we are voluntarily submitting and subjecting ourselves to an authority, our Father, God, our Father. It's the acknowledgement of a continued existence and a need for authority in our lives. But also our acknowledgement of God as our Father contains a powerful, uh, more horizontal connection from one believer to another. So as each one of you confesses the truth that God is your Father, you and I are now consequently confessing a new relationship dynamic among ourselves as we are now all brothers and sisters. Now some of you hearing that today might be burnt out from family gatherings over the last few weeks, but this is a family gathering that keeps recurring week after week after week for 180 years in Merton and for 180 years after. This is a family gathering of brothers and sisters who are worshiping and praising God the Father. So this makes, obviously, for one strange-looking family tree, doesn't it? Now, I think it would be, would be careless and also ignorant to assume that, that identifying God as Father would automatically bring comfort to all of you. It's true, I think, for some of us especially, that we have good fathers. We've had good dads. And it's also quite true, though, that some of you were horribly mistreated, abandoned, neglected, or, or would just admit humbly that it wasn't the best relationship with your father or what you could have hoped it would be. But whatever the case... 
what we see, though, is it, the good that was in our earthly fathers is a faint pointer or shadow of the true goodness of our Heavenly Father. If it, is, it is God the Father who defines what a human father must be like, not the other way around. In fact, the very, the very fact that we, we know what human fathers ought to be like demonstrates that we actually have some kind of concept of what an ideal father truly could be. And that is our father, God. God is the father for whom every human father is a mere shadow. And so, so we can say in unison, I believe in God, the Father. Now, the song we'll sing in a few moments in response is a reflection of our Father's love towards his children. The, the lyrics go as follows. We'll sing, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. This is the, the deep love of the Father who, who loved you and gave his son so that you and I could live forever. The love of the Father has brought many sons and daughters to glory and, and this, this is the God that we believe in. Our God is Father. And, and so not only do we need something real, a personal God, we need a God who exists, a God we can relate to, uh, but we need a God that is truly magnificent, perfect in every way. And so point three this morning is that we need to believe in a magnificent God. Uh, we need to believe in a real God, we need to believe in a personal God, but we also need to believe in a magnificent God. He's not a storm god, though the storm will bend to his awesome power. He's, he's not a fertility god, though he can control seasonal changes and our livelihood. He's not, he's not a war god like Mars, but no army can stand against him. He is all of those things and so much more, and that is why we profess that he is all mighty. He is all of those things. He is mighty. And for this reason, we not only proclaim that that we believe in God as Father, but in God, the Father, Almighty. The scriptures often speak of God as what we would say, El Shaddai, the God who is all-powerful. Almighty means that, that God can do and will do all that he intends. All that God intends to do, unlike you and I, he actually does it. And that's the difference. God is almighty to do whatever God wants to do and will do. And we can often treat God's sovereignty as a theme for controversy, but in Scripture, the truth is that God's sovereign, almighty rule is a matter of worship. It was those foundational truths in God that that shaped Paul's words of praise and blessing as he wrote to the Corinthians. Back in chapter 2 of Corinthians, verses one, or sorry, chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, Paul wrote again, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, 
who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Why is what Paul is saying here so important? Well, it was Paul's belief in this almighty God that then led him to boldly proclaim to the Corinthians that because of God's sovereign abilities and willingness to care for them, he was able, unlike anyone else, to, to comfort us in any affliction. That his mercy, mercies have, have no end. And so Paul could firmly tell this church that this God, this Father, is almighty in his mercy and comfort for you. There is no end to God's mercies. And so in the Apostles' Creed, the word almighty in many ways represents a collective that is meant to represent all God's attributes, the fullness of God's perfections, all of God's attributes, his omnipotence, he's all-powerful, his omniscience, he knows everything, his omnipresence, he's everywhere, his self-existence, he doesn't need anybody to make him keep going, keep existing. He's, immu- he's immutable. He will never change. All of these attributes and more are summed up in this one word, Almighty. Only the God who possesses the fullness and infinite majesty can truly be almighty and sovereign over all creation. And so affirmation of God's absolute sovereignty drives Really, all that follows in this creed, what you see in the Apostles' Creed that we'll confess is that the three great movements of God's power are as follows. First, God lovingly brought the world into being, into existence. Then God lovingly entered the womb and became part of this world in Jesus Christ. And then, God, the Holy Spirit, is lovingly transforming the world and the lives of his church. At every point, God's power is hidden. And where, where we see God's power at its best, where I believe that we see God's almighty works at its best, where we need God's power in all its glory, in all its magnificence, where we desperately need God to be almighty, is in his infinite, abundant mercy. And that's why Paul says that Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. As you and I consider together the, the, the Father's heart for you, remember that he is the Father of mercies. He is not cautious in his tenderness towards you. He multiplies mercies matched to your every need, and, and there is nothing he would rather do as your Father and to bring you comfort, and to show mercy. So listen, church. My sin, and your sin, though they are many, God's almighty mercy is so much more. In Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, he writes that your, your gentlest treatment of yourself is less gentle than the way your Heavenly Father handles you. 
His tenderness toward you outstrips what you are even capable of toward yourself. So if you can imagine that, as, as much as you think you are gentle toward yourself, as much as you think you take care of yourself, as you think about yourself and care for yourself and make sure that your needs are met, God is a father of abundant mercies and all comfort. And he will care for you and I more than we care for ourselves. That is what an almighty God can do. His mercies comfort and cover all your affliction. Our Father's mercies are endless. You and I cannot sin ourselves beyond the capacity of our loving Father's abundant mercy. It's impossible. You cannot sin yourself past the multitudes of his mercy. Do you know why? Because he is almighty, and he is the father of mercies. He is the God of all comfort. If you sin this morning, and you sin later today, his mercy is abundant to cover that sin. He is the father of all mercies, the God of all comfort. So men and women of Grace Hill, we need something real. We need something personal. And we need something magnificent to believe in, don't we? We need a God who exists. We need a God we can relate to. We need a God that is perfect in every way. And if we can't believe in a God like that, then we are indeed hopeless people. But men and women of Grace Hill, we do believe. And we have an eternal hope. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty. Let's pray. Father, God Almighty, we are full of hope. Like fellow men and women throughout the history of this church, your church, we can proclaim in unison that we believe in you, the one true God who exists, is real the great I am, who loves us and knows us and cares for us. You care for us as our Father. You are almighty, magnificent in every way, and your mercy, Lord, your mercy, Father, is more than our sin. A room full of sinful men and women. And yet, your almighty mercy as our loving Father has dealt with that sin in your Son, Jesus. Let's stand and sing of our deep love from our Father.